We welcome all of our new online listeners. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephen Finney, the hosting pastor of XL Church in IOM America. My wife Jane and I are blessed that you decided to join us. XL represents Exchange Life. Our church is an outreach of IOM America. Everything we do sits upon the pedestal of compassion. So let's get started. Enjoy the worship, illustrative videos, prayer, and weekly message. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. The left, in the words of Barack Obama, want to fundamentally transform the United States of America. I don't. I want to improve the United States of America. I think Donald Trump's one of the worst things to happen to this country. When he was elected, I cried. I think he's a racist. Trump is real. I think he's a crazy bugger. I go, oh my my, what this is going to be a problem today. So he cusses when he gets mad. He says things that are brutally honest. This is ridiculous. I don't think he's a typical politician at all. He's I a think danger for the world. We need to be secure. I love America, and I think that he does too. I cannot forgive him. Oh, he said something wrong. It hurt somebody's feelings. Well, let's get real here. of globalists to have a one world government. Essentially to control the entire planet. And they're ruling everybody. Nations will give their allegiance to a political leader that will arise. The rise of the Antichrist. That dark hour is surely around the corner. The U.S. should never cede its sovereignty. The end time world government of the Antichrist will be a socialistic one world governing body. Margaret Thatcher is famous for saying the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. Socialism is thievery. Government controls the economy. It doesn't work. Control, control, control. This is not freedom. This is not freedom at all. When he leaned forward. He said they killed all of them. I'm talking about the enemies of America from within. The radical left who wants to transform the United States. If we see socialism achieving its goals in America, then America will no longer be great. One of the great perplexing questions in Bible prophecy is, where is America? As I read the scripture, it appears that there's no place for America in the prophetic scriptures. This is the history of our planet, and the United States is just a blip on the radar screen. Many people have said that the United States is not in the prophecies of the Bible. America is so exceptional that people who even hate our guts all want to come here. As much as they hate us, they want to immigrate to the United States. We have to stop illegal immigration, not just to protect our country, but to protect the immigrants who want to come in here. A nation that doesn't define its territories puts at risk its sovereignty. Build a wall, be it physical, uh, be it virtual, infrared satellite imaging, whatever it takes, build a wall. The United States will not be part of the world governing body. Guess what's happening right now? 
the whole world is against Israel. When God says the nations who bless Israel will be blessed and the nations who curse Israel will be cursed, we either believe that or we don't. For 20 years, our Congress, our presidents have talked about moving our embassy to Jerusalem. That's called leadership. It's like when Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. America stands with Israel. It's either in her body or her body. If it's her body, then it's the equivalent of a pimple. So, you can just kill a child for any reason? If we have President Democrat, well, we see what they want infanticide. How can we judge anybody when we legally will kill a baby? Look at this, you're killing babies in New York and then you're killing babies in Virginia. No one has an issue with women removing pimples. Well, first of all, we're all flawed. We're all sinners. We don't elect a pastor to lead the country. The Messiah will not arrive on Air Force One. It's not going to happen. So many times I have other Christians challenge me and say, how could God use an ungodly person like Donald Trump? And I say, well, he's using you, isn't he? Psalm 22, verse 3, promises that God will be enthroned on the praises of His people.
everything else is shaking, Lord. My hiding place, my strong tower, refuge, my hiding place. Oh, yes, you. Hey, friends, I wanted to uh, let you know how blessed I was uh, by all the really thousands of comments I got. Uh, last week, I sent out a post, what are you thankful for? And, you know, you think about times like this, is this a time that we're supposed to be thankful? And the answer to that is, is yes. Uh, the, the Bible says to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there it is, uh, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So we, we bring our prayers uh, and our petitions to the Lord, but we bring them with thanksgiving in our hearts, uh, with a thankful heart. So Lord, we choose to do that today. We come before you with a thankful heart, thanking you for all you've done. And by faith, we thank you for all you're about to do. Pray for my friends. All those who just uh, took the time to write and share their thoughts on Thanksgiving. Letting me know what they're thankful for. Let's pray that you would meet all their needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And today we come before you with a thankful heart and a song of praise. Amen. Today we start number 38, it's titled The Little Book, The Bride and the Groom. It's important for us to understand the role of each, the groom, Jesus Christ, and the bride, the true indwell believers, who house the Holy Spirit living within them, which we call authentic believers. The voice John had earlier heard from heaven forbidding him to record the words of the seven pearls of thunder, spoke to him once again. As he had earlier, John again became an active participant in this vision. Remembering, he left the place of an observer to become an actor in this drama. 
This third reference to the location of the angel emphasizes strongly the unusual authority he has over the earth. Then in a graphic illustration of what a proper response on the part of the believers really should be. Those of you who are truly indwelt Christians, pay close attention. The angel knew that John's reaction to this truth and would come with the temptation to be confused. Obediently, just like Ezekiel before him, John in this vision took the little book out of the angel's hand and he ate it. As the angel had predicted, in John's mouth it was sweet, sweet as honey. But when he had eaten it, his stomach was made bitter. Let's take a look at our passage for today. We're going to be teaching out of Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. It says, In a loud voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go! Take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, and nations, and tongues, and kings. Let's review the book John saw in the hand of the mighty angel. Well, remembering it was the same little book John described in chapter 5. John's first peek at the book was when it was closed. But this time it is opened in the hand of the one worthy to open it. This passage is much like what we see in Ezekiel. And it says, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. That's out of Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. As for Ezekiel, it goes on, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. That's out of Ezekiel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Just like when Ezekiel was commanded to go to the house of Israel and deliver his divine message, John was commanded to go and take the little book out of the hand of the mighty angel, so he did. He is then told to eat the book, which he does. John finds the little book taste to be the same savor as Ezekiel's. Sweet as honey. But the moment it hit the stomach, he became sick with bitterness. There seems to be a bit of a paradox here. As you know, there is nothing sweeter than the message of grace, redemption, and the peace of Jesus. But there is nothing quite as bitter as the judgment of God. To eat, that is a biblical term for taking ownership of a particular message or truth. 
When John eats this little book, he quickly realizes that the word of God has been sweet up to this point. But something is about to change. The day of bitterness or judgment is upon all of creation. As with Ezekiel, it's not all sweet to be a fully consecrated child of God. A child who does what he is told becomes the absolute most important mandate given not only to Ezekiel, not only to John, but to all of us. Did John really eat this book? Since I work to stray from biblical symbolism and cling to more to God's mandates and absolutes, in John's vision, I say yes. If John was commanded to do something, be assured the beloved of Jesus did what he was told. Yes, there is pain, suffering, bitterness, heartache, lamentations, and agony when we see and fully realize the judgment that God has warned us for thousands of years. God's message of judgment is bitter. That's a fact. It brings on suffering and fear that, needless to say, is going to happen. Maintaining a balance of knowing that God is love and all-consuming fire is critical as we study the remainder of the book of Revelation. After all, it is the harsh realities of God's warnings of his revenge and judgment that typically stop people from reading this magnificent book. Jesus said in John 6:53 these following words. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's right out of John chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. Moving on to the reality that Jesus is the Word, we find that in John 1, 1. The John 6 passage gives us special insight into what John's message in Revelation is all about. I believe that when John was asked to eat the words of the little book, he was demonstrating in real time the truths of John 6. The Word was made flesh for us to eat of Him by taking Him into our minds and hearts. The Word is alive, and those who eat it are sweeter than honey, and those that eat it become bitter in the mouths of those who refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All those who share the blunt truths regarding God's harsh judgments or as acts of revenge, should expect bitter responses. Prophecy has always been a bitter topic throughout the Old, New, and the Book of Revelation. John ate the little book with sweet in his mouth and bitter in his soul. Embracing the full meaning of this message and call, the message is sweet and the calling not so sweet. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. When you have to prophesy is when bitterness 
enters the minds and souls of the unbelievers, typically resulting in persecution or violence. John certainly knew this was not going to go well. Prophecies can provoke gladness and sorrows, peace, and even violence. Even though the message will be a sweet joy to those who want to hear the truth, it also will be horrible news to those who do not want to behold these powerful, life-changing truths, and they certainly will not want to be held into account. Let's take a look at the issue of the bride and groom. We just finished John's bittersweet experience, where God told him, quote, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. With God refueling his commission, John was about to embrace the most horrific but glorious reveals of all. He's being reminded to be faithful to his service to write with the passion of Christ. What God was about to reveal to him would affect every life that was and is to come, the bitterness of judgment. We are about to enter some of the most avoided scriptures in the entire Bible, passages that have been argued over since the day of John. No matter what your theological bent is, one thing is clear when the seventh angel sounds the trumpet, the domain of Satan, his demons, and his persecuting followers will be broken, and the opinions of man will matter not. All who have dishonored God will be rightly dealt with, judged, for every thought, attitude, in action that has risen against the hand of God. Saying goodbye to chapters 1 through 10, God is about to take ownership of what has always belonged to him. Before we review the Revelation passage, let's take a look at the pathway of the groom. This planet is his, always has been. It was created for him to establish a breeding ground to produce a bride for his son. Of course, that's Jesus. For those who do not find this a bit odd, it is evidence that you most likely do not understand the groom's full pathway. Let's review the pathway of the groom. The Old Testament marriage. God formed the earth for his benefit. He then established Hebrew law, characteristics of God, for daily living. We call this the Old Testament. Hebrew law descends from heaven... Men do not make it up. This is why it is a holy act to study and embrace Hebrew law, culture, and their customs. Contained within Hebrew domestic laws, it is required for the firstborn male to marry. This is not optional. The firstborn male is he who inherits all of the ways of the fathers. This is what guarantees the stability of multi-generational family life it also preserves the character of God in culture. Due to this fact and the reality that God himself obeys his own Hebrew laws, he formed or created a system to reproduce itself, according to Genesis 1.22, which is to fill the stockyard. Why? For the father to handpick the cream of the crop as bridal members for his son. Now here's our critical note. 
The Hebrew tithing requirement of 10% is based on this cream of the crop concept. Many Christians believe the percentages related to the narrow and wide gates are these Hebrew tithing percentages. I happen to be one of those that believe that. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the pathway is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's a good chance that God himself would reveal the fact that 10% of the entire population from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to the last verse in the book of Revelation would be 10%. Here's our reality. God created the earth and all that is in it to set the stage for picking bridal members for his son. He formed the garden, established the two trees, put Satan in the tree of knowledge, set Adam and Eve up for a choice, then allowed the fall. And this was all a part of a selective process. That puts a completely different slant on why God created us. For years I believe that we humans have put too much of a selfish bent on why God made us. When I hear some of the warm and fuzzy, biblically wrong reasons for our existence, I too get sick to my stomach. When we look in culture today, we see those percentages flipped. Since people think that true Christianity is Christ-following, that's probably more like a 90% of the people, particularly in this country, but most likely worldwide, think that they are true authentic Christians. This simply doesn't work with Hebrew law or customs. The Old Testament was when God was establishing his mandates and guidelines for his son's future marriage. It was done by releasing the Hebrew law on earth. This was also a time when Jesus stayed in heaven while his father did what fathers do, prepared a way for his son. Coming up next in number 39, we're going to be talking about the details of the Revelation groom. Now comes the time when the way of the Son, Jesus' birth, brings a new stage to the end times. His childhood was his preparation for becoming the groom for his bride. His baptism into ministry was the beginning of courting his bride, those who were the called or the elect. We are glad that you joined us today. We understand that studying the book of Revelation is a challenge. We also want you to remember that it is impossible for you to comprehend the deep truths stated in the book of Revelation unless you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit living inside you. If you're an unbeliever, a non-Christian listening to these particular messages, at some point in time you're going to have to make a decision to either refute Christ or to accept him. In the PDF of this particular message, in most of our messages, we have a salvation prayer at the bottom of that PDF. Please keep that in mind. Again, thank you for joining us. We look forward to reconnecting with you in our next message. Until next time.